Welcome to Potomac Hills. I'm glad you found us on our YouTube channel. I hope you'll subscribe. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark, and this is our 31st week in this amazing Gospel. The Gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark, a follower of Christ and a protege of the Apostle Peter. He brings us the earliest eyewitness accounts of the life of Christ. So I'm glad you've joined us this morning. I hope you find it worthwhile. Before I start, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and listen carefully as I read our scripture passage for today. Mark 10, verses 17 to 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel once again to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand. It's hard to admit that we don't have it all together, that we're not nearly as obedient as we like to think, and that we treasure our stuff more than we treasure you. So help us to consider what it means to follow Christ and to hear your word. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. More than one in five Americans say religion does not play an important role in their lives, according to an NBC Wall Street Journal polled, it showed that the highest percentage of uh, those 
um, since the poll began asking about faith, have said that religion does not play an important role. 23% said religion is not that important to their lives. That's up from 21% just six years ago and 14% in 1997. The poll showed that these less religious Americans are more likely to be men, they're more likely to have an income over $75,000, to live in the Northeast, the Washington, New York, Boston corridor to be specific, or in the West, and to be under the age of 35. You know this guy. He lives here. Forbes magazine says so. As most of you know, Loudoun County is the wealthiest county in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., universally regarded as the most powerful city in the world. Young people work on congressional staffs, helping to make decisions that affect millions of people. And the money flows so freely you can smell it. The Washington area is the place where people come to make money. It's a place where people come to do stuff. It's a place where people come either to exercise power or learn how to exercise power. And it attracts a certain type of person. And they live all around us. Think about this average guy. Wealthy, young, powerful, smart, active, and for the most part he's single. He's rich, nice shoes, tailored suit. His money is invested, his plastic is golden. He lives like he flies, first class. He's young, he pumps away fatigue at the gym, and he slams dunk old age on the court. His belly is flat, his eyes are sharp, energy is his trademark, and death is an eternity away. He's powerful, and if you don't think so, just ask him. You got questions? He's got answers. You got problems? He's got solutions. You've got dilemmas? He's got opinions. He knows where he's going, and, and he's planning on getting there tomorrow. He's the next generation. So old guys like me had better pick up the pace or pack their bags. He has mastered the three P's of the millennials, prosperity, performance, and power. He's the rich, young ruler. Now, for the sake of an interesting introduction, I've probably made him sound a lot worse than he actually is. More than likely, he would have been considered a pretty good guy, both then and now. After all, Jesus tells us that he was rich in more ways than one. He was financially wealthy, and he was morally wealthy. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it appears that he's a decent person, a person characterized by moral excellence. When Jesus actually lists many of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself, he says, bingo, I do all that. And let's assume he's telling the truth and that anyone who knew him would say, yes, here is a man characterized by moral excellence. Here's a man who's characterized by sexual purity. He's a loving son. He's a great citizen. He's a man of integrity and honesty. Let's assume all of that is true. Not only that, we're told he's wealthy. Mark 10, 22, he had great possessions. Well, back then, as well as now, 
there's kind of an unconscious feeling that those things go together, that if you do good, then you'll do well. And if you've done well, it's because you did good. Remember when Maria, the main character in The Sound of Music, is about to marry a rich guy? She realizes she's going to marry a rich guy, so she sings a song. It's a musical. She says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. What's she saying? I must be a pretty good person, or God wouldn't be rewarding me like this. Of course, we can see the reverse in what Job's friends said. When Job fell into poverty and disease, they essentially said, somewhere in your youth or childhood, you must have done something bad. There must be something wrong. So there's a feeling, it's kind of hard to describe, and nobody really wants to articulate it, but that if you live a good life, then God will reward you by giving you a certain amount of prosperity. So in a sense, you're characterized by moral excellence, and obviously then, you're being rewarded by God uh, by being given a prosperous life. Now, within our circles, within reform circles, within the PCA, we regularly put down the prosperity gospel as a false gospel, and it is. But inside, we really want God to bless us with lots of stuff. So we kind of like this guy. He reminds us of us. And as he approaches Jesus, it seems like here's the ideal person. Any church leader would say, this is the kind of guy I'm looking for. This is a person I want. Not only is he characterized by moral excellence, a man whose life is very together in all sorts of ways, but he's even willing to admit there's something he lacks. Think about it. From a pastoral standpoint, it's great to have a rich person willing to come to church and still say, I'm missing something. This guy has got it together, even in terms of honest humility. So much so that he can admit, I don't really have it all together. Hard to believe, but I still lack something. Now, before we go any further, we have to stop and ask, why is this event happening at this point in the story? In Mark 10, the Lord Jesus is teaching us about the nature of the kingdom of God, the character of the kingdom that he's ushering in. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's focusing in on three subjects, children, our marriage, children, and possessions. Now, two weeks ago, we considered Jesus' strong words about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And last week, we considered Jesus' words about children. And now their trust and humility and love are examples for adults who want to enter the kingdom of God. We are to become like a child. So remember what's going on here. Jesus is continuing his journey on to Jerusalem. He's engaging the disciples and teaching about what it means to follow him and his forthcoming crucifixion and resurrection. But they're not getting it. They're having trouble understanding, grasping what he's saying. Jesus has just told them that he mu they must enter the kingdom of God like a little child. Everyone has to come to Jesus with nothing, in helpless dependence on him. No one can earn the kingdom. The requirement is the same for everybody, a simple, childlike trust in Jesus. It's that easy. It's in this context we see one who's 
in many ways, the opposite of a child approaching Jesus. And so turn with me to our passage today, Mark 10, starting at verse 17, where we see it's easier than you think. If you're following along in the sermon outline, that's the first blank for you today. Verses 17 to 22, it's easier than you think. It says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Everybody at one time or another asks the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Where will I go when I die? How will I get there? These are what we refer to as ultimate questions. Everyone thinks about them. These questions go to the heart of what it means to be human. They address our significance, our importance, and our destiny. Think about this. The questions are connected. How you answer one will influence how you answer the others. So one day, this respected man in the community comes to Jesus. He's specifically interested in his destiny. Verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in the process of answering that question, Jesus teaches him about what matters most in life. He teaches him that what you decide now will determine where you go later. The questions connect, so do the answers. And this text addresses the important question, who or what should have first place in my life? Jesus demands that people give him first place in their lives above all else and above all others. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Colossians 1.18. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. <coughs> so this account of the rich young ruler raises the question, Can and will someone of great wealth and standing receive the kingdom like a little child? There's a lot more here than meets the eye. So let's see how Jesus addresses the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, you have to go to the right person. You have to go to the right person. Man ran up to Jesus. He had great wealth, verse 22, great possessions. Luke 18 calls him a ruler. Matthew 19 says he's young. Thus, we call him the rich young ruler. He's a man of power and affluence and influence. And evidently, he'd heard Jesus teach and was impressed. So he didn't walk to Jesus. He ran to him. He's eager because it says that Jesus was setting out on a journey. 
so he may not get another opportunity to talk to this man whose teachings were unlike any that he'd ever heard. And with remarkable respect, he knelt before him. So he sees Jesus as this distinguished rabbi, and he pays him an honor. It's reserved for the great teachers of the law. He's certainly come in the right way with humility, and he's come to the right person, Jesus Christ. And Jesus can readily identify with the rich young ruler. After all, he's about 30 years old himself, and he too was rich, far richer than this man could ever imagine. As the Son of God, Jesus had lived for eternity in the glory, wealth, love, and fellowship of his Father. And what he's about to ask this man to do is not unfamiliar to him. He's already left it all behind. Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. About this, Tim Keller writes, And Jesus would say, I am going into a poverty deeper than anyone has ever known. I am giving it all away. Why? For you. Now, get ready. I am going to ask you to give away everything to follow me. If I gave away my big all to get you, can you give away your little all to follow me? I won't ask you to do anything I haven't done already. I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who's given away the ultimate wealth to get you. Now you need to give away your wealth to get me. Jesus is the right person. So first you go to the right person, but then you have to ask the right question. Verse 17, this man calls Jesus good, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is an astounding tribute, indicating the impression that Jesus has made on him. The Jews referred to God as good, but never spoke this way of each other, except in some qualified sense. Only God is good in the absolute sense of the word. And Jesus' response in verse 18 bears that out. The rich young ruler is awed by Jesus, and he has this important question to ask him. It's one of the most significant questions of all. How do I get eternal life? In the Bible, the gift of eternal life is called entering the kingdom of God, having treasure in heaven, and enjoying the life to come. (coughs) It's the life of God, and it's the life with God. It's the privilege of being a member of God's kingdom, but it has to be received with faith in Christ and the reliance of a little child, the helpless dependence of a child. Now, we don't know if the rich young ruler had heard Jesus say that or not. His question, by no means a bad one, implies he believes that eternal life is something you work for. He says, what must I do? Now, all the religions of the world can be categorized under do or done. I am saved by what I do, or I am saved by what another has done. Christianity is a done religion. Eternal life is not achieved, it's received as a gift based on what Jesus has done for us. So the rich young ruler has to have both a change of theology, but also a change of heart if he is to inherit eternal life. 
So having gone to the right person and asked the right question, he now has to make sure that he gets the right answer. Verses 18 to 21. Jesus answers the rich young ruler's question with another question, a theological question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now he doesn't return the rich young ruler's uh, flattering greeting, as one might expect. He puts the focus where it should be, on God. The rich young ruler's starting point was wrong because it was himself. What must I do? The rich young ruler is no doubt a good man by the standards of the day. And he sees in Jesus another good man whose insight into spiritual things could perhaps solve this lingering question that bothers him. However, Jesus forces him to look to God for any hope of genuine goodness and eternal life. And furthermore, Jesus implicitly confronts the rich young ruler with his own evaluation of Jesus. To call him good is to call him God. Is that what he meant? If Jesus is not God, then he, like everyone else, is a sinner and therefore not good in a supreme sense. On the other hand, if he is God, it would be appropriate to call him good. It would also be appropriate to worship him, follow him, and obey him. So he's challenging the rich young ruler to think clearly and to choose his words carefully. A challenge all of us would be wise to consider. And he doesn't wait for a response. He immediately says, you know the commandments. And then he cites the last six commandments, which address our relationships with one another. The rich young ruler wanted to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, I'll tell you what you have to do. Obey the will of God which is revealed in his perfect, holy, and moral law. Obey this in the good sense that is perfect, in the same way that God is good, and eternal life is yours. And the rich young ruler responds, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now to us, that sounds arrogant. If it's true, it sounds like boasting. If we give him all the benefit of the doubt, we're hearing him say that he has conducted his life according to the law of God. He's honored and obeyed all of it. In an external sense, what he said may have been true. Like the Apostle Paul, he was faultless with respect to the outward demands of the law as taught by the religious teachers of Israel. He'd worked for God's approval and his record was spotless. And then we get to verse 21. It's one of the most touching and tender verses in the Bible, just as verse 22 is one of the most tragic. Verse 21, we read, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. There's a sincerity and earnestness about this rich young ruler that moves the heart of Jesus. His heart reached out to this man because he's so close to the kingdom. And then we read, Jesus said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So having addressed the last six commandments, Jesus now addresses the first. God must be God in our lives. No one and nothing can stand between him and us. This particular demand puts on the rich young ruler, uh, not a general command for all people, it's specific to him. It could be specific for some of us. 
but it's not a general command for all persons at all times. His wealth occupied the place that only God should have in his life. It's his idol. It's his God. Your idol may be different. It probably is. And he may have obeyed, relatively speaking, those commands that address relationships, but he lived in perpetual disobedience when it came to the first and fundamental commandment, Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus is saying you come up short in your life in one crucial area. What will be first? Jesus offers himself as a substitute for the man's wealth. Only when he gives it all, all away will he become like a child. Only then will he possess everything. The call to discipleship is a call to radical trust in Christ. Jesus challenges all of us, put away anything that's an obstacle to following him. You cannot love your wealth supremely and love Jesus supremely. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So now this rich young ruler has gone to the right person. He's asked the right question. He got the right answer. But now he has to give the right response. Verse 22. And verse 22 records the tragic end to their brief encounter. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Sorrow and sadness move in. He went away sorrowful. Some versions say grieving. Why? For he had great possessions. His gold would remain his God. Jesus' difficult demand was met with a no. He got the right answer to his question. He just didn't give the right response. One commentator notes a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. Well, in the end, for the rich young ruler, it didn't seem easier than you think at all. In fact, it felt like it's harder than you think. And that's the second blank in your outline. Verses 23 to 27, it's harder than you think. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So the rich young ruler had come to the right person, Jesus. He asked the right question, How do I inherit eternal life? He received the right answer, Honor God, follow Jesus in complete trust like a little child. But sadly, he didn't give the right response, and he walked away from the only true source of eternal life. Again, Tim Keller explains, When Jesus called this rich young ruler to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. 
It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. And Jesus told his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not condemning wealth and he's not commending poverty. But the point is, wealth breeds confidence in self. And it's very addictive. Scripture addresses its dangerous attraction repeatedly. Wealth becomes the priority and the things of God go by the wayside. However, when Jesus says this, the disciples can't believe it. So he doubles down. He emphasizes it even more, starting at verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. First of all, Jesus calls them a term he had just given great value to, children. <coughs> now, I'm sure as they're listening to Jesus, they had to think what he was saying was both funny and impossible. A camel is one of the largest animals found in that part of the world, and the thought of trying to squeeze it through the eye of a needle would strike them just as odd, funny and impossible. And to paraphrase, they essentially respond, Perhaps salvation is harder than we thought. It only takes one thing, like wealth, to keep you out of God's kingdom. And they didn't see that coming. Jesus has turned the value system of the world on its head. And it says the twelve were exceedingly astonished. They asked him then, who can be saved? You see, Judaism is guilty of its own prosperity gospel. Wealth and riches are seen as evidence of God's favor. And Jesus is correcting that. Actually, wealth can build a barrier to that one thing necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Helpless dependence. Childlike trust in Christ. His answer to their question is one of the great theological affirmations in the Bible. Verse 27. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Salvation is something no one can accomplish by themselves. Left to ourselves, we'd never make it into God's kingdom and inherit eternal life. Salvation is, has always been, and will always be a divine accomplishment through the perfect atonement and sacrificial death of God's Son. It is done, not due. Now, with people, entering God's kingdom and receiving eternal life is impossible, and no one will be saved. However, with God, all things are possible, and anyone can be saved. If you desire for Christ to be your Savior, you have to replace what you've been looking to as a Savior. We all have something. I don't know what yours is, but something. You need to think about that. Jesus tells the rich young ruler... I want you to imagine life without money. All you have is me. Am I enough? Do you truly believe the person who has Jesus plus nothing has everything? That's the question he's putting before him. It's the same question he puts before us. So entering the kingdom of God is both easier than you think and harder than you think. But then Jesus says that it's worth it because... It's better than you think. It's better than you think, verses 28 
to 31. Starting at verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We could suspect the disciples would have lots of questions. They need to think things over. And so Peter has this sort of perplexed but heartfelt plea. He's the ever-ready spokesman for the disciples, so he picks up on the words of Jesus and says, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus affirms that whatever you give up in this present life, for my sake and the gospel, you will, not you will not fail to receive a hundred times as much now in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The things Jesus notes that we may have to give up are precious things. Look at the list. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. It costs to follow Jesus. However, he's saying that the blessings far outweigh the losses. In God's kingdom, the blessings are simply too great to imagine. But there's a catch. One of the surprising blessings in this list is persecutions. Its inclusion strikes a sobering note of realism for anyone who's going to follow Christ. To be a member of the kingdom of God means to share in all that is Christ's. And this includes suffering on his behalf. When seen against the promise of eternal life, the Apostle Paul addresses persecution, trials, tribulations. 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction, it never feels light and momentary. But he says, in reality, that's what it is. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, John Piper specifically applies these verses to us. He writes, It means mainly that if you're deprived of your earthly family in the service of Christ, it will be made up a hundredfold in your spiritual family, the church. But even this may be too limiting. What about the lonely missionary who labors for years without being surrounded by hundreds of sisters and brothers and mothers and children in the faith? Is the promise not true for them? Surely it is. Surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's affection and concern, you get back a hundredfold the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the camaraderie of a brother, you get back a hundredfold the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness that you had in your house and land, you get back a hundredfold the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and every land and every stream and every tree on the planet. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? 
And he finishes with this now familiar saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. It's one of those things Jesus probably repeated several times. In Christ's kingdom, there's this grand reversal of every earthly standard of rank, of position, of importance. God doesn't evaluate things the same way we do. As citizens of his kingdom, his children should think more like him than the world. To the general public, the rich young ruler stood first. The children were last. But God saw things from the perspective of eternity. And the first become last, while the last become first. And those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes. But those who are last in their own eyes will be rewarded as first. Again, Tim Keller says, The heart of the gospel is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Remember, this passage comes right after Jesus' encounter with the children. And surely the rich young ruler is set in deliberate contrast. He was strong, the children were weak. He was self-reliant. They were helplessly dependent. He turned away from the Lord in frustration. They rested peacefully in the Savior's arms. It's an effective contrast. It's a contrast between self-reliant works and the dependent faith that receives the kingdom of God like a child. And all God's children said, Amen. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. And in this passage, we see your son. And open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We look at you and say, Jesus, we come expecting a little additional help. But now we see you have to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. You have to be our Alpha and Omega, our everything. And we ask that you would make it so. Give us the faith to leave our treasure behind, to make you our treasure, and to rejoice that you make us his treasure. And so, Lord, if there is anyone among us this day, anyone who comes to watch this, to hear this, who's not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your Spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone that they might embrace Christ the King. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. We'll see you next week.